They are considered one of the most hated populations in our society. Their depiction of them have been described by mainstream media, documentaries, and books. And recently, they have been the main antagonist to conspiracy theories and movements such as QAnon and Save the Children. But what if I told you that everything that you currently know about this population doesn't tell the whole story, is incomplete? What if I told you that the way we talk about this population is ineffective, and the horrific reality of who ends up paying the price? Would you be willing to listen? I am your host Nelson, and this is The Social Chemist. And today, we will be talking about the American pedophile. Now before I start this episode, I need to address two things. The first one is, who is doing this podcast? Who am I? And why am I talking about this population? I think that's important. And the second is, why are you listening to this episode? Let's address the first one. As of this recording, I am currently a graduate student at Rutgers University pursuing a master's degree in clinical social work. And my goal is to work with non-offending pedophiles. And the reason why I want to work with this population is because I feel like they are misrepresented, they are misunderstood, and the misconceptions are overwhelming. I also want to make clear that what I will be saying today is based on empirical evidence. I am not just spouting my opinion. I have done my research. I've dedicated the last two years of my undergraduate studying the psychology and the sociology of pedophilia. So again, I'm not just spewing my opinion. These are the facts of the situation. Now, the second part is, why are you listening today? Are you listening because you want to learn the psychology of pedophilia and understand how these individuals come to be? Are you here because you want to reduce child molestation and child pornography and the exploitation of children? Or are you here because you want to reinforce your idea of what you think a pedophile is and find another reason to hate on this population? Well, if you fall into the first two, welcome. You're going to enjoy today's episode. You're going to be very informed by the end of it. It's going to be hard to swallow. I'm not going to lie to you. It was hard for me to grasp this concept when I took my human sexuality course. But if you fall into the last category, I'm going to be quite frank with you. This might not be the episode for you. Because everything that I say will, again, be based on empirical evidence. And the reason why you're listening today will determine how you will process this information. And so I think that's important for you to realize, and I think that's important to acknowledge, because I've done this presentation before countless times, and each time I do it, I learn something new. And one of the things that I've learned is that not everyone will process this the way I would hope for them to process it, and that's perfectly fine. This is a new issue that's being addressed. It's very controversial. It's a very touchy subject, so I get it. But again, everything that I will say in this episode is based on research. So, now that we got that out the way, let's get started. So we need to define what a pedophile is. And to do that, we need to go back to its roots. Now, pedophilia falls under a spectrum. And the spectrum is known as paraphilia. Now, paraphilia is the unusual attraction or persistent attraction of certain objects or people. So some paraphilias that I can think of are necrophilia, the sexual attraction to corpse, dead bodies, and sexual sadism which is the arousal of pain and humiliation. These both constitute paraphilias. And in that, you will find pedophilia, which is the unusual sexual attraction to children. Now, I've seen the label of pedophilia being tossed around with so much ease. When people think about a pedophile, they think about the 31-year-old man working on a drive-thru, 
hitting on the young employees that are 18 or younger, thinking that, you know, he has a chance. Or we think of the 68-year-old man who is in some type of romantic relationship with an 18-year-old. But that doesn't constitute pedophilia. So if that's not pedophilia, then what is? Well, for starters, pedophilia is the persistent and sexual attraction to children that are 13 years or younger. So that's the first part. But there's more to it. If we look at the DSM-5, the Diagnostic Statistic Manual, the 5th edition, you need two criterias to be considered a pedophile. We look at criteria A. Criteria A states that your sexual interest towards children must persist for a period longer than six months. Criteria C of the DSM-5 states that the person that is pedophilic must be older than 16 years of age and be five years older than the child that they are attracted to. Now, notice two things. The first one is that in the two criterias, there is no description of an action. An action has not occurred. And the second one is that I've named criteria A and criteria C. But what about criteria B? That's important. And we're going to get to that. But this is important for our understanding of what pedophilia is. Because pedophilia by itself is not an action. It's a state of mind. It's an, it's an attraction to children. A lot of people, when they think of pedophiles, they think automatically that, oh, this person is a child molester. He has sexually abused children. But that is just not the case. So it's important to clarify that pedophilia is the state of mind while child molestation is the action. And both are not exclusive. And we will see this later on. So what is criteria B then? Well, criteria B is when the individual has acted under sexual interest. But that does not constitute pedophilia as much as it constitutes pedophilic disorder. And that is the difference between a non-offending pedophile and an offending pedophile. You are only required to be attracted to children. However, if you act upon your sexual interest, then you have crossed the line and into pedophilic disorder, which is how it's classified in the DSM-5. So if pedophilia isn't an action, but an attraction, does it mean that pedophilia is a sexual orientation? Does it mean that we are going to legalize adult and child relationships? This is an argument that is consistently brought up when it comes to this controversial topic. And the answer to that question is no. We are not here to normalize the relationship between adult and child. But at the same time, the people that are making this argument fail to realize what is a sexual orientation. Because the argument that they provide is assuming that the sexual orientation somehow is consent for an action, for a relationship. And that's just not the case. I want you to stop for a second and define in your own words what a sexual orientation is. Because I guarantee you that what you think a sexual orientation is isn't necessarily how it's defined. So, what makes a sexual orientation? Well, forensic psychologist Michael Seto broke down sexual orientation into three parts. The first part to a sexual orientation is the attraction. Now, I don't think I need to explain to you guys why an attraction is essential to a sexual orientation. You need to be attracted, of course. The second part to a sexual orientation is the age of onset. Now, the age of onset states that your sexual orientation was predetermined before you were even born. And there's evidence of this. Think about your first crush, whether it being a female or a male. Your first crush was probably at some point when you were in, probably in first grade or in grade school. You had this attraction towards them, and you knew that you were attracted to that specific gender. 
But you knew this without even engaging in any sexual act. You just felt. You felt a romantic interest. Now, a lot of people will throw the argument, well, Nelson, that's not necessarily true. I knew a guy in middle school who, when he went to high school, converted to homosexuality. He turned gay. He was straight, and he converted to the other team. Well, I'm sorry to break it to you guys, but that person that you're referring to, he was already gay. He just tried to oppress his sexual interest because, of course, being a homosexual back in the early 2000s wasn't really the most accepting aspect of a person. But they were born that way. They didn't convert, quote-unquote. And so, again, this is a part of the sexual orientation. You are born this way. You are born with your sexual attraction already predetermined. You have no say in that. And since we're on the topic of homosexuality and heterosexuality... Isn't it interesting that, as a man, for a quote-unquote straight man to convert, it is easier for a straight man to turn gay than it is for a gay man to turn straight? There is a double standard. But the reality is, is that your action has nothing to do with your sexual orientation. You can be a straight female, and you can know a lesbian, for example, and you can actually experiment and have sexual intercourse with that female friend. And by the end of it, you can still identify as straight. Why is that the case? Because if you are not sexually attracted to that person, then you are not a lesbian in this example. And I know that's difficult to swallow. Trust me, it was. it took me a while to try to grasp this concept. But your sexual orientation has nothing to do with your actions and everything to do with how you feel. We then enter the last part of what makes a sexual orientation, and that is the stability over time. And the stability over time states that whether you are attracted to a man or a female, depending on, on your orientation, your attraction will be consistent throughout all your life. So if you're attracted to boys, you will be attracted to boys when you're 8 years old, when you're 18, 36, 52, 79, until the day you die, your sexual attraction and your sexual orientation will not change. And these three elements are what form a sexual orientation. But notice how in the three elements, I never state an action. A sexual orientation needs the attraction, the age of onset, and the stability over time, but no action is ever needed. So with that being said, is pedophilia a sexual orientation? Well, studies have found out that individuals with pedophilic inclinations, as they grow older, their attraction to children does not go away. That being said, yes, pedophilia is considered a sexual orientation. But does that mean that we are going to legalize the relationship between adults and children? No, because again, your sexual orientation does not require an action. And as a matter of fact, your sexual orientation does not know right from wrong, doesn't care if you're a Democrat or if you're a Republican, doesn't care if you went to school, if you went to college, if you have a bachelor's degree. Your sexual orientation's only function is the attraction. Nothing more, nothing less. I've seen a lot of counter-arguments against this that will say, well, how dare you consider pedophilia sexual orientation? You are tarnishing the reputation of the LGBTQ community, a community that have fought for their rights, that have fought for the right to love who they want to love. And the reality is that regardless if there were laws in place to prevent them from getting married, the fact is that there are no laws that can prevent a person from being attracted to whoever they're attracted to. Remember, biology does not care about our social norms. Our sexual orientation is just based on our biological functionings. 
And why am I emphasizing this point? Because how we talk about pedophilia is going to determine how we prevent child molestation. The fact that we regard it as a crime instead of a state of mind pushes us further into finding a solution to sexual child abuse. And later on, I'll explain why this is important. Let's talk about how we figure out when someone's a pedophile. We know now that pedophilia is not an action, but a state of mind. So with that being said, to be considered a pedophile, you need to actually be diagnosed pedophilic, as we have just described using the DSM-5. Again, we went over this earlier on. But how do we truly find out when a person's a pedophile? Well, there are three methods, but each one has its limitations. The first method is the self-reporting method. Basically, an individual will go and they will take an assessment and they will answer the questions that will determine if they are a pedophile or not. The problem with this, however, is that most times the individual taking these assessments are not going to be honest. Think about it. You're taking an assessment that will determine if you are a pedophile do you really want to be sincere in that assessment knowing the stigma that is behind being labeled a pedophile, the social rejection that one must go through? Imagine a person that already has an idea that they might be pedophilic, but they are fighting, they are suppressing these emotions, these feelings, and imagine an assessment confirming their worst nightmare. They wouldn't want to do it, and a lot of people just end up not being sincere when it comes to these assessments. And so that's why these assessments can only take you so far. The second type of assessment is the psychometric assessment. And this is a little bit more accurate, only because instead of the individual who has possibly pedophilic inclinations, a psychotherapist is assessing the individual. However, as I mentioned before, this also has its limitations because these assessments have gathered their information using one population, offending pedophiles. And that's actually the biggest problem when it comes to this population. The fact is, is that everything that you know about pedophilia comes from this population. Every book, every journal, every movie, every news report that you've ever read, even the DSM-5, the book that is used by psychologists and clinical social workers to diagnose an individual with pedophilia, all have gathered their information from offenders. Now, if you've taken a general psychology course, you know that that's a huge problem. As social scientists, it would be wrong to state that we know everything about pedophilia when we've only used offenders to gather all the information that we know about this population. That is equivalent to doing a study on the risk factors of illegal immigration. And in that study, only using illegal immigrants that have a history of criminal activity, and then using that information to claim that all illegal immigrants are by definition savages and gang members. We know that's not true, because in this example, we've only used illegal criminals. So of course, the information that we've gathered is going to be skewed. And the same thing is true when it comes to pedophiles. We've only come in contact with offending pedophiles, but hardly have any contact until recently with non-offending pedophiles. And that's the unfortunate reality, because there's only two ways we come in contact with a pedophile, either through child molestation or child pornography. Outside of those two, there is no other way to come in contact with these individuals. As a society, we're always ready to react, but we're not really ready ever to prevent. The last method, and the most effective, yet controversial, of all three, is the phallometric assessment. And what they do in this method is basically, an individual would come in and they would put patches on the penis. 
And then they would proceed in demonstrating different images of children in sexual poses. And depending on the blood flow that goes through the man's genitals and the growth of, of the person as they view each image, that will determine if a person is a pedophile or not. However, again, this has its limitations. The first limitation is that people can refuse not to participate in this assessment, and a lot of people do, for the same reason why a lot of people don't want to be sincere when it comes to the self-reporting method. No one wants to find out or be diagnosed officially with being as a pedophile. The second reason why this has its limitations is that whether you have child pornography for scientific research or personal satisfaction, it is illegal to have such material saved on a computer. And for this reason, this assessment, to my knowledge, has not been done in the U.S. Now, as a future clinical social worker, my goal is to help non-offending pedophiles not offend. But this is a very controversial stance to take. Not everyone is as understanding as I am on the topic. A lot of people would rather have pedophile seasons where they would hunt these individuals. I've heard some that they want to put pedophiles legs first through a wood chipper so they can suffer for their attraction. But all these methods are ineffective. If you were to get a list of all pedophiles and you were able to hunt them down, well, congratulations, you're a hero, you have killed pedophiles. But let's say that in this list, every time a pedophile has offended, you found them and you killed them. Great, right? Isn't that the point? But I would ask, how have you prevented child molestation? You're only reacting to it. You're reacting to it because the only way we know when a person's a pedophile is when they've acted on their sexual interest. But there is no preventative measure. And this kind of brings me to the sex offender registration. Is it effective? Does it do what we think it does? Well, let's look at some data. Researchers have found that between 25 and 75% of the information in these sex offender registrars are incorrect due to missing documentation and data entry error. And 95% of individuals that are placed in the sex offender notification system, 95% of them are placed after they've committed their first offense. Keyword, after. The notification system does not prevent child molestation. It just tells us that it happened. And I don't know about you, but this system is ineffective. We literally use children as bait to find out when a person's a pedophile. Again, I repeat, we're always ready to react to child molestation, but we're never really ready to prevent it. So then what are we waiting for? Why not give these people therapy? Why not build programs that are going to prevent such atrocity? Well, if only it were that easy. In Germany currently, they have a program called the Prevention Project Dunkelfeld. And in this program, they offer confidential therapy for non-offending pedophiles for individuals that are suffering due to their pedophilic inclinations. And it's the only program in the world currently that I know of that actually offers this type of service. Now, taking that into consideration, this program is heavily successful. It actually has a high approval rating from victims of sexual child abuse. They approve this because they understand that preventing sexual child abuse is a whole lot better than just reacting to it. But with that being said, is it possible to expand that program? Let's take into consideration that in a study conducted, it was reported that 95% of psychotherapists in Germany said that they would never work with a pedophile. This is the same nation that has the only program in the world that addresses pedophilic inclinations. In that same study, 65% of psychotherapists said that they were inadequate in addressing pedophilic inclinations and 38% 
of psychotherapists said that they had negative perceptions of working with a non-offending pedophile. Now imagine the United States and think about how we talk about pedophilia in this country. They are the most hated population in American society. They are a part of countless conspiracy theories. And the hostility comes not only from the LGBT community, but it comes from mentally ill people as well. They do not want to be associated with pedophiles. They don't want pedophilia to be even considered a mental disorder. Nonetheless, consider it a sexual orientation. The stigma for being a pedophile is beyond anything that any minority can experience, any community can experience. Most importantly, however, what separates Germany from America is that in Germany, non-offending pedophiles are guaranteed confidentiality, while here in America, confidentiality is non-existent. And this is the main reason why non-offending pedophiles never go to therapy, because the risk of being reported to authorities is just too high. See, we have the luxury of going to a therapist and talking about our everyday struggles. You can go to your therapist and talk about your depression, talk about how you're you broke up with your boyfriend and you're heartbroken about that. You can talk about how you, you're concerned about the global pandemic that we're going through and how unemployment has affected your mental health. When you go to a therapist, you are guaranteed confidentiality. There are only two ways when your confidentiality is thrown out the window. When you're going to harm yourself or when you're going to harm someone else. Other than that, you're safe. But when it comes to pedophiles, they know that every time they walk into that office and they speak to their therapist, they run the risk of being reported. Because if they say the wrong thing, if whatever they say is misinterpreted, the therapist is obligated to inform the authorities, family members, and even employers. And that's just a risk that no one is willing to take in this community. Why would they when they can just be in hiding? But that makes things worse. Because if they don't receive the therapy that they need, if they don't receive the support that they need, they will find a community that will support them. And it's not the community that either of us want them to be a part of. Communities like the North American Man-Boy Love Association, which is a pro-pedophile group that advocates for the relationships of adult and child. If we don't offer our hand to this population, those individuals will. We are fortunate enough that there are such organizations such as Virtuous Pedophiles and Before You Act, organizations that promote non-offending pedophiles to find therapists that are willing to work with this population, but they can only do so much. Unless we change the way we talk about pedophilia, we will continue to see more cases of child molestation. Because the sad reality is that for many non-offending pedophiles or individuals that are discovering their pedophilic inclinations, they are not aware of these support systems. What they are aware of is that they're hated, that they're despised, that death is wished upon them, and this sentiment prevents them from seeking help. What they will do is that they will suppress these emotions, this attraction, in hopes that they never act on it. The statistics, as I mentioned earlier, are still a mystery because we do not know how many non-offending pedophiles are really out there. But for many, their identity is defined by what they see on the television. For many, they think that being a pedophile means that they need to abuse children, that they need to be molested. And the fact is, is that that is not true. A person has pedophilic inclinations, has the option, has the choice not to be defined by their attraction. However, if we continue to talk about pedophilia the way that we talk about it now, they won't know about this choice. And I cannot stress that enough. Because currently, a teenage boy 
is beginning to discover his pedophilic inclinations and he can't tell his friends, he can't tell his family, he can't even tell a therapist currently. And the sad reality that I mentioned earlier in this episode is that the only people that are willing to listen to a pedophile is the 8 year old girl who just walked into the wrong room and has no idea what's about to happen to her. Thank you for listening to today's episode. I know today's topic was very controversial, but it's one that I feel it's very necessary to address, especially if you want to reduce the number of cases of child exploitation. Follow me on Instagram, socialchemistig, all one word, and I hope to see you next time. Remember, question everything with logic.